welcome to the Up Your Dialogue podcast. We are back and better than ever. I am your co-host, L.A. Londi, and with me as always is the other co-host of the Up Your Dialogue podcast, Jay Scott Harden. And um, we are here today to discuss a topic as we usually do. We cover many, many topics on the podcast. Unfortunately, we have not been able to do a regular podcast. Um, I'm not sure if that will change in the future. We just kind of pop up whenever we get a chance right now. I know that's not convenient to the Up Your Dialogue listeners, but uh, hopefully you'll stick with us. And if we ever do get on a regular schedule, we will notify everyone. Um, we've covered many topics. You can find us on upyourdialogue.com. You can also find us on the Twitter. We pop in every once in a while and cause a ruckus there from time to time. Um, but all of our podcasts over the last couple of seasons are available on upyourdialogue.com, uh, where we cover many, many topics. Um, we tend to stick to theological worldview topics, political topics, but sometimes we do talk about stuff like movies and uh, book reviews, things like that. So you'll find lots of different stuff out there if you so choose. And today's topic is CRT. If you don't know what CRT is, that is critical race theory. Uh, we have decided to discuss this topic because of its recent um, emergence into the culture, into corporate America, into our military, into just about every facet of life. And if it hasn't reached you yet, it, it will probably at some point reach you in some way, whether it's CRT, critical race theory, or it's uh, offshoot of intersectionality, which we'll touch on as well tonight as a part of the discussion. Um, in some way, shape, or form, you're probably going to at least hear it, and you may even sell, may even find yourself involved directly in it. Um, and so we thought it was prudent, or it would be prudent, to have a discussion on the topic, and we come so from two different lenses, uh, two different worldviews. Um, we do have the Judeo-Christian worldview from uh, mostly a Reformed perspective for myself. We have the agnostic worldview from Jay Scott. Um, and But we find that um, in a proper dialogue setting, a long format setting such as this, that we're able to often come to similar conclusions. We're able to have a proper discussion without me shouting at Jay Scott or him shouting at me or us getting angry and uh, uh, you know walking off the set or anything like that. Because uh, for many years, we've been able to have uh, such a uh, friendship that um, evolves around our discussions. Uh, the time that we've spent together over the years has been uh, fruitful. Um, I've learned many things. I think Jay Scott has also learned many things, and we are most definitely better for the friendship that we've had over the years and the times that we've had many, many hours of discussions around various topics that, you, that if brought up in today's environment, you either have a podcast that where people are getting angry at each other, or you have an environment where people are not able to have discussions with other worldviews or other viewpoints. Um, they only have one-sided discussions, uh, or actually sometimes not discussions at all, just one-sided uh, viewpoints, uh, because the other viewpoint is no longer tolerated. Uh, um, in some cases, uh, in many cases, completely cut off. Um, and so we're not about that on Up Your Dialogue. Uh, the reason we call it Up Your Dialogue is because we want to up the conversation level. We want to be able to have long conversations where each has their time to speak, to make their point, um, and to bring it into whatever worldview that that particular co-host has, um, and be able to discuss things um, in a, a civil, rational matter. And so that's what we're going to attempt to do tonight with the topic of CRT. We are not going to create straw men on, on this podcast. Uh, we take the definitions of things seriously. Uh, we take words seriously. Um, we are going to let CRT speak for itself from its own very well documented and peer-reviewed academic uh, information. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit of history. We're going to talk some philosophy. We're going to talk some theology. That's what we do. And um, we're going to discuss various points. Um, and we're going to see where we come out on this thing that's had uh, such a large impact on the culture at large, whether it's in uh, the very much debated topic of racism in our time, um, or whether it's um, 
the hedge me, uh, you, you know, it, it really kind of just surrounds all of or many of the hot topic uh, debates that people are having um, today. So uh, that's a brief intro. What we usually do now is kick it over to, um, to Jay Scott to see if he has any opening remarks. Everybody, welcome to Up Your Dialogue. We're recording this on Sunday, June 27th, 2021. It's been a couple of months, I think, since we had an episode. Um, and for regular recurring uh, episodes, we'll see, as Ellie has uh, told us, what happens in the future. But one thing uh, that we do know is what's happened in the past on this show. Uh, we're calling this season two because we're in 2021. I had a listener reach out and uh, to me a couple of weeks ago uh, and wanted to know when the next episode would be. But that being said, this person uh, reviewed before asking all of season one. So one of the things you can do as a listener, and new listeners maybe will find this of particular interest, but you could review our episodes um, in exactly that, a topical manner, an episodic manner. So if you were interested in C.S. Lewis or film reviews that we do, uh, or debates uh, and discussions and explorations of um, you know life in some troubled cities like Portland and Detroit, our hometowns, uh, or the origins and outcomes and nature of revolutions, France, Soviet, American, and otherwise... You can go through our website at uh, upyourdialogue.com and you can simply search based on the topics and needn't be chronological. These episodes are not really meant to build one from another. They're, um, you know, they discuss the topic of a day or of interest. And so I think as I look back through the episodes, I find it interesting that that one could uh, zero in and focus on different uh, topics at will. And we'll, you know, the more episodes we do, the more uh, robust that um, collection of uh, episodes, body of work will be. So if you don't uh, find an episode next week, and maybe you will, and maybe you won't. But if you don't find an episode next week and you haven't heard them all, scan through sometime and there are a variety of topics. Today's uh, topic, critical race theory, is a um, potential topic that LA and I have had on the back burner for a while. Um, and so it didn't just arise this week, although CRT is very prominent in the culture and in the news today. So it's um, exceptionally relevant as far as topics of the day go. That being said, I started separately studying some of the literature uh, and the history regarding CRT uh, around February of 2021. And so this doesn't mean to say that I wasn't familiar with the civil rights movement um, and some fundamental tenets of American history, as we may have discussed on the podcast at some point, uh, my degrees are in history. And so, um, you know, American uh, antebellum history is a specific uh, area of study for me. But that being said, U.S. history in general isn't a foreign process to me academically. And now that it hit the culture in 2020, we know the world... Um, changed significantly. And a couple of things happened. The COVID experience uh, took everybody out of, you know, physical contact with one another and people hunkered down in their bunkers for a long time. Some still are doing this, uh, but something like a year or a year and a half, this had a huge impact on American life and indeed life around the world. Uh, and two, we had the George Floyd uh, incident and thereupon the summer writhing of 2020 that kind of spilled over um, into, you know, depending on one's political point of view, spilled over into the election uh, of 2020 and the inauguration uh, in 2021. So that that uh, promulgation of events is what caused me to specifically want to look under the hood of critical race theory, its academic um, origins, and the current uh, literature that is popular among the thinkers behind uh, CRT. And then now, um, some months have gone by since I first started looking at it, and you see it everywhere. So it spilled out of the academic world, and we'll talk about this in more detail, but it spilled out from the academic world into the popular culture in most every way. LA has mentioned uh, some areas like the military, a very um, hot topic for critical race theory area right now, but also uh, big tech, business, uh, and of particular interest to me, uh, education and the curriculum 
of our primary and secondary schools. So this isn't any longer uh, the purview of a single academic area at the academy, at the university, but rather it's spilled out everywhere. And probably the most important part of it to me, this is certainly debatable, but for me, the one that draws my greatest attention is how we are um, raising our children and teaching them about American history because these children are very young, such as between five and 18. And what we say to them as teachers and parents and a community and leaders and sources will, by definition, have the most important impact in the long-term future of America. These are our children, and they're going to grow up, and they're going to assume power over the direction of this country in full one day. So when we start um, influencing their behavior and their worldview and their ways of thinking or lack thereof, such as in kindergarten, um, this uh, this is the most critical part of critical theory to be. Uh, and among the scariest parts too, because we don't necessarily going to know how a five-year-old will process this and move forward through life. So welcome to the podcast, everyone back, and uh, we'll refer to LA to kick us off on the, on the topics of uh, critical race theory. And I look forward to the discussion. All right, as do I. So Let's um let's kind of get our feet wet in in CRT by setting up kind of some basics and um before we get into actually some points that CRT raises and and then the discussion will kind of form around those points. So critical race theory uh is not something um whether you're familiar with critical race theory or not, whether it's the first time that you've heard of it or whether you've experienced it in some way, shape, or form over the last one or two years where it really has kind of come to the forefront. The theory and in general, um, is not something new. It's not something that has just kind of come out of a vacuum and all of a sudden began to attempt to transform things or transform the country or the structures that the country has been uh, founded on. So where does critical race theory come from? You know, there's nothing new under the sun, uh, so to speak. Uh, everything comes from something. We've had this kind of discussion before in, um, uh, previous podcasts where, um, you know, whether you're talking about an atheistic worldview or um, a political structure or, or any type of thing, it doesn't just poof out of nowhere. You know, there's, you know, the Reformation we've talked about on this podcast, the Enlightenment we've talked about on this podcast. People came before us and thoughts and ideas, they, they, they mushroom out of other ideas. And this is the case for critical race theory. Um, there is something called critical theory. Um, and critical theory um you know, stems from Marxist roots. Um, some even can go can go and take some of critical theory from Immanuel Kant, uh, who wrote the critique of pure reason, um, uh, Kant's trans- transcendental idealism. Uh, the, these type, these ideas, and, and what are these ideas around? What do they mean? Well, in in regards to just critical theory, um, the core concepts of critical theory are that it should be directed at the totality of society and its and its historicity. Um, Improving understanding of societies through major social change, um, targeting structures that societies are built around. So you think of things like the proletariat, you think of things like the bourgeois and and how these um, classes kind of intermingle, how we build political systems around them. This goes all the way back to that type of thought. Um, How are structures built? How do we um, interact with each other across class mainly uh, is, is what the focus is on there when you think about Marxism, you think about, or a socialism type framework. Well, it's, you know, you have haves, you have have nots, you've got groups of people that are coming together and have to be governed. How do you approach that? Um, and so these different theories um, come out of, out, of, out, of, out of different ways of cultures combined together and form governments and political systems. So critical theory and, and uh, the ideas of postmodernism and things like that, um, 
they were prevalent for a time. And then, of course, we saw the downfall of things like the former Soviet Union. Um, we saw the downfall of Marxist ideology. Um, and there was a time in this country where we were very anti-communism, anti-fascism, anti-whatever-ism that you could come up with. And we were very pro, you know, free markets, um, especially during the Reagan years. Uh, you know, we came out of the 60s and the 70s and we were full on, you know, America, melting pot. This is the type of thing that I grew up in the 80s with. Um, America is a melting pot. We all kind of come together as Americans. We salute the flag. Um, I'm a veteran. So, you know, very much into the idea of defending freedoms, that type of thing uh, that come to us from our documents, right? And our documents clearly say that they come, our, our rights, um, our very idea of, of, of life and human beings and all these things, they come from our Judeo-Christian principles. Um, you know, we're endowed by our creator, uh, certain unalienable rights, um, all these, the, the Bill of Rights, um, the Federalist Papers, you know, all these things, it just kind of came naturally for a period of my life. Um, didn't think about them too much um, until I became a little bit older. And even when uh, I became older, it was just kind of something that we almost took for granted in some cases. Well, all that's changed now um, uh, in our culture today. Uh, that has really become under attack. And one of the ways that that's come under attack is by a branching out of this critical theory um, that has its roots uh, in Marxism. Uh, and into critical race theory, which basically um, takes the ideas or framework of critical theory and sees all of that through the lens of race. So the structures that we have taken for granted, uh, Judeo-Christian structures, are racist. Those things are corrupt. They are part of the white male hegemony of um you know, created for a particular purpose and that purpose being corrupt. So critical race theory branches out and says, well, all the structures need to come down because all the structures are corrupted or racist um, to the point where we've really redefined what we thought racism was. Racism being, I'm, you know, I'm better than you because I have a superior race. You are an inferior race, um, something that the United States went through a tough time on. You know, it's clearly Jim Crow, um, you know, a civil war was fought in this country over the idea of racism and slavery. Um, this country has a specific um, dark history when it comes to this particular issue. And so critical race theory expounds on what we thought was racism and what we thought was something that impacted our country a certain way and says this impacts not only in the way that you thought it did, but in much bigger ways and structural ways. And now, much like in critical theory, where we have to bring the structure of whether it's capitalism or whatever it is down and replace it with this Marxist system or socialist system or whatever it is. Um, this says that you have to bring all of the structures down and, and replace them in some way with uh, something that is anti-racist, which is the new lingo from that you see from people that Jay Scotter is probably going to delve into, uh, Ibram X. Kendi, um, and those who are kind of following along in those lines. Well, Ibrahim X. Kendi did not just pop out of a vacuum. He didn't just show up on the scene with all these thoughts. He basically uh, you know, read uh, read the books by Delgado and Stefanczyk on uh, an introduction to critical race theory. You know, he is steeped in this stuff, and so he has brought a, the branch of critical race theory to the forefront um, as it as it begins to seep into, like J. Scott was saying, our, our corporations are now teaching it. Our military uh, has it as recommended reading. Um, our at our colleges and now our pre-college institutions, high school, public school systems are starting to teach this stuff. And it really is antithetical to what I grew up with 
as far as what history was. And that's part of the arguments of critical race theory is that that's part of the problem, the way that they see it. Uh, we grew up with a jaded form of history. America is not the America that we have been taught it is. Um, and so we have to teach this new idea of America um, and understand as best we can, listening to our black brothers and sisters explain to us you know, what racism is and, and how we can't possibly understand what it is as white people, as people who have grown up and you know, surrounded by whiteness. And you know, we'll start to explain and unpack some of these terms probably as the podcast goes on. So um, the next thing we're going to do is kind of get into the, the, the principles of what CRT is straight from the founders of CRT, from their own writings, from their own writings that people like Ibram X. Kendi actually get their ideas from. Uh, so we're going to go right back to the actual uh, writings of these things uh, so that we're not creating straw men. We're not, you know, just throwing out our own ideas of CRT. We're going to go right to the right to the horse's mouth on this thing. Um, but before we get into uh, breaking down critical race theory from those points, um, we'll send it over to Jay Scott for any of his thoughts on that basic CRT uh, intro. Great. So I was looking for a something that people could refer to to kind of get their foot in the door on the history of CRT, maybe a central location that covers uh, some basic terms and some basic history and some fundamentals in case people want to have a look or do further reading on the topic. Um, and one of the the thing that crossed my plate was on Easter Sunday of this year, that was April 4th of 2021, a fellow on Fox News, who is unusual in the lineup of Fox News analysts, uh, gave a, an entire episode on his show called The Next Revolution. Uh, his name is Steve Hilton. And if anybody doesn't know him, he is not uh, American in origin. His family were Hungarian, and he was um, born and raised in uh, Britain, United Kingdom. And what, not so much a, a commentator perspective, but he was the advisor, uh, director of strategy for David Cameron, the conservative uh, prime minister of United Kingdom, I think from 2010 to 16. And Steve Hilton was his guy advising him on strategy and uh, politics and nuances. And so he comes from a robust intellectual background in that way. Um, you will find him on Twitter for those of you who go to Twitter anymore. We are there at Up Your Dialogue. Uh, but Steve Hilton is on there too, at Steve Hilton X. And this episode that he did, people can look it up or get the summary. But I'll just walk through a few central pieces of it so that maybe as by means of getting an introduction to this thing. Um, but in that episode, uh, the main topic was about wokeism as a new religion, uh, this idea of being woke and what it means. And it's kind of does a little bit of rule switcheroos. And two of the writers that he refers to about these rule switcheroos, switcheroos, which I'll talk about, are uh, Robin DiAngelo, whose book is called White Fragility. And of course, as L.A. mentioned, uh, Ibram Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. That is the one that I read, uh, among some others in this area during my own research, because Kendi's a prominent voice uh, crystallizing large parts of the movement, but they, they do kind of linguistic changes. And this is the thing I note about critical race theory. So it takes a term that you thought you knew, um, terms such as justice or diversity or equality or even equity uh, or inclusion. And it takes those terms back into the lab, an academic lab, pulls them out of the discourse and into an academic lab, wherein they're redefined uh, in critical ways, uh, including in Marxist ways, and then reinserted into the cultural and popular discourse. And this is where I really first noticed something was up culturally because the terms that we thought we had agreed upon no longer mean the same things in the public discourse. So a good uh, example of this right now today is uh, in politics, the parties are pushing through and debating uh, infrastructure plans, infrastructure stimulus plans. And people thought they knew what an infrastructure meant, specifically building of bridges, roads, uh, airports, waterways, 
that kind of thing. Maybe even you would include uh, internet or, or some communications. And that isn't exactly what is meant by the current left when it comes to infrastructure. So there are multiple bills being added in Washington, D.C., uh, such as um, equal housing and access to education and daycare and other things like that that people wouldn't have thought of as certainly a physical infrastructure. But the term has been taken out of the vernacular vocabulary of the culture, redefined and then reinserted with the idea of, come on, you don't believe in infrastructure when really what is meant by infrastructure is not what it used to mean or what you thought it meant. They do this with terminology all the time. So Hilton will give you some examples of this. Uh, and these are quotes from that episode that I referred you to from April 4th, 2021. Victimhood is sainthood. Or if you're not a straight white male, then you're oppressed. So there are two categories of people we didn't know, straight white males and everyone else. In the everyone else category being women, people of color, people of different orientation or otherwise non-straight white males of any kind, including blacks, are by definition among the oppressed. Some thinkers don't like that. And I would refer our listeners to Candace Owens who does a podcast um, called Candace and who is now on the Daily Wire doing a show and who otherwise is a prominent speaker that contests um, the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, the notion that Black people are oppressed and need help uh, to make their way in the world, Blacks, or else they won't be able to succeed. Some Black people, uh, there are many of them, in fact, but I like Candace because she has, she usually is very clear and forceful in her discussion about the fact that for people who are trying to make their way in the world based on their own uh, talent and merit, find this specifically offensive that someone will need to coddle them, teach them, control them, help them, or otherwise push them uh, into the direction of success when they, these people are fully in their world responsible and capable of doing it on their own. So Candace Owens is a little bit like that. If you haven't heard her, uh, it's worth a listen. Um, and Steve goes through some what he calls the Woke Ten Commandments. This is uh, sacrilege for someone like LA, but it's tongue in cheek for Steve who says, for example, thou shalt not think for yourself. Thou shalt not hold an opposing direction. My favorite was, uh, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor if thy neighbor is not woke. Uh, so if the neighbor isn't woke, then you must bear false witness. In other words, you can lie and make up anything you want and then have that person canceled. A form of punishment for non-believers. There is a wokest vocabulary, uh, what Steve calls vocabulary, which is speak speaking your truth. So there's no uh, objective measurable truth. It's your own personal truth or what is called a lived experience. Uh, the nature of microaggressions, being an ally, which means you're, you're, you may not be a black person or, or a gay person, but you're a nearby person to that area. So perhaps you're a little bit brown and then you could be an ally or maybe an Asian American who has succeeded uh, by going to college and done well as a white ally because they're kind of like whites, but somehow not exactly. So this kind of weird uh, racial concept. Where does it come from? And LA brings up uh, the most valid point, which is there's nothing new under the sun, but we have had changes in the world. The Industrial Revolution, for example, was big. The American Revolution was big. And uh, indeed, the Marxist revolutions were also hugely impactful. Now we're in the midst of the information age. So you get instant gratification, virtual reality life. Uh, you order anything from around the world, which means the China supply chain, and it'll arrive on your doorstep the next day before 7 p.m and so forth. Uh, but where does it come from? And the Marxism is a key link. I have studied history deeply in the course of my travels and the going theory in America when I was a student in the academy, which would be in the 1980s and 90s, was that communism was dead. Why? Because Soviet Union fell. Uh, Glasnost and Perestroika won the day. The Berlin Wall was removed. Soviet Union as an organization was... Um, given over to Russia and the parceling out of the Soviet states, um, you know, places like Ukraine or, or uh, Belarus and all the rest of them uh, gained independence. Um, and so 
I think Americans that I talked to, intellectual Americans that I talked to in those days, in the 90s, in the early heady days of the 90s when this happened, was that the Soviet model was officially dead and it could never come back. And it was over and the American Western, uh, indeed also capitalist view of the world ended up triumphing. And I remember thinking to myself, and I think we even had, I even had some discussion about this with LA many years ago, long before the origin of this podcast, uh, that in my, you know, my instinct was that was communism really dead? It looked dead. The Soviet Union, the the uh, bugaboo of my youth uh, and the Cold War was over and it seemed like uh, all was well in the world, more or less moving forward. And I thought to myself, well, these communists uh, don't just go away so easily. And the future of Marxism may also not go away so easily. Still, it did seem more dormant than at any time in my life. Now I look back under the hood and wow, we have a new form of Marxism. And there are a couple of things going on with Marx and Hilton did a pretty good job uh, discussing the history, what he calls the history of wokeism. And there are three areas uh, that critical race theorists focus on in an attempt to revolutionize Western world, American world as we know it, and reconstitute it into a different vision. We'll talk about this different alternate vision, but the three things uh, that are focused on is the destruction of some of the core tenets of American life. Specifically, number one, the family and the nuclear family in particular. So the nuclear family is out. Uh, if you are part of a heterosexual relationship and you have offspring and are you know married and have children, this is a oppressive model and children would be better served in critical race theory by not having nuclear family. Uh, instead, they'll get their, their sustenance and their direction from somewhere else, but not the nuclear family. Number two target is religion. In America, that basically means Christian religion, right? We know there are four agnostics in America, so those aren't the ones they're talking about. And there's a smattering of other religions too, uh, could be you know Buddhist or Muslim and so forth, but it's mainly a Christian country and has been traditionally. And number three, you have to attack uh, in order to bring down the social structure. You have to attack the culture, and we're finding that uh, in overwhelming ways by the pervasion of critical race theory into all most all branches of the modern culture in America. Apparently, this uh, this idea of attacking these three areas—family, religion, culture—is uh, what was brought back by a Hungarian historian and philosopher Georg Lukács. Uh, this guy, I don't want to bog you down with too many details, but if you're looking for him, uh, his book of note is called History and Class Consciousness, published in 1972. And uh, there is where he lists those uh, three uh, areas of attack. And his question was, why did Marxism ultimately uh, not take over the world? In other words, even by 1970, it was clear that the Soviet Union hadn't conquered and perhaps would never conquer the entire world. And he took that as a failure. Why was the world not swept by Marxism um, and brought back the reason for the fact that it didn't sweep the entire world was because it failed sufficiently to attack family, religion, and culture. And uh, if you attacked these three, then you could complete a Marxist revolution. Um, and so this is part of the origins of what is called critical theory. Not necessarily critical race theory, but critical theory broadly. And critical theory broadly um, was brought to academia from a socialist German enclave, the Frankfurt School, um, which called for what is called repressive tolerance. And by that, it means you don't criticize people that are of the left until you go about destroying the funding, the fundamental building blocks of society. Then you can fight amongst each other. And one of the students that came out of that was uh, Angela Davis, who studied the Black Panthers and worked with the Black Panthers in particular. And we'll talk about the Black Panthers in some detail because this has an important link to the Marxist ideology that ultimately would be spun into critical race theory. Uh, but critical race theory came out of that. In fact, a blending of Marxist methods and tactics with the American history that came out of the civil rights movement and the unrest generally in the American race life during 1950s and 60s. So another person of note, how do you apply this combination of Marxism and uh, black social unrest 
and we'll call it the Black Panther uh, branch, the Malcolm X branch, as opposed to the Martin Luther King uh, branch of civil rights in America, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw. So she was the first uh, academic to use this term called intersectionality. The idea being is that your identity was formed by certain areas, race, sexuality, gender, and the more intersections you had that were non-white and male, the more authority you had over outcomes. So if you were not just a white woman, but a lesbian white woman, and if you weren't just a lesbian white woman, but you were a lesbian woman of color, and you start adding up these different parts of your identity, these intersectionalities, then your view has more weight. The fewer intersections you have, the less weight. And so some of the modern policy applications that we see today are uh, for example, culturally, the world of sports. Uh, what is a male and what is a female and can you be transgender? And if so, which league do you play in and how do you identify that day? The sporting world, education, non-traditional history. We'll talk about contesting views of American history. Uh, the one LA knows about and the other one that, that, which is not to say that he doesn't know about, but it's the one not as many people do know about. Uh, defunding of the police, um, racial training in corporations and among government officials. So here you go to learn how to apologize for your lack of intersectionalities and work on your problems indefinitely uh, and virtue signaling surrounding how you go about doing that. So uh, just uh, in summary, check out Steve Hilton if you want a 45 minute kind of overview that was pretty well done. Uh, with that overview, I'll return our discussion to LA and uh, we'll move forward from there. Right. So some uh, some good kind of underpinnings of the idea of critical race theory, how it branches out of critical theory and, and Marxist origins which I think is important for people to understand when they're thinking about critical race theory in the, in, in the obvious realm of racism, or if they're thinking about intersectionality and the various ways that these, these group sections are being brought together, these oppressive group sections, um, what is the purpose of all this? You think of Black Lives Matter as a, as a group that you know, cares about the lives of black people, or do you see it as a branch out of basically a, a Marxist train of thought? Um, what Jay Scott has pointed out is that it certainly is a branch out um, you know, of a Marxist ideology, of, of an idea in a critical theory idea that says there are structures in place that need to come down, whether you see that as political, whether you see that as um, cultural, whether you combine those together. Um, the units or the structures or the groups have to come down. Um, the idea of America as individuals, individuals coming together from different countries, cultures, what have you, and, and merging together as Americans in this great experiment is, is under attack by this Marxist ideology that has morphed itself into critical race theory, intersectionality, and, and what have you. So it's important to understand that. This isn't something that we have just made up or that we're attacking uh, you know, for, for reasons that are personal to us or subjective type things. This is factual, basic, historical underpinnings of the theory. And so we understand that things start out as theories, they move into academic theories, and then they become political movements. And, you know, that's where transformation um, of structures and societies begin. Um, and so this is really decades upon decades in the making. This is not something that just popped out of nowhere, um, some brand new thought. Uh, it's just kind of a a branching out of, of old school ideas, um, a new way of defining um, what structures need to come down. And this particular ideology has really been successful over the last couple of years of really moving into the culture, moving into the structures um, and attacking it and doing so fairly successfully, more successfully, I think, um, than critical theory, of, you know, Marxism or any type of ideology in the past. So that being said, um, let's move in to discuss what this critical race theory really is as defined by its really um, 
its main introduction, its main um, book, if you will, uh, Introduction to Critical Race Theory by Richard Delgado and, and Gene Stefanczyk. This is kind of the magnum, magnus opus of critical race theory. Um, many, many people you hear talking today are going to reference the ideas and thoughts in this book. So if you really want to understand critical race theory, you should read this particular book. I believe it came out in the 90s, but its origins go back to the 70s. Um, and so the in, inside of it, you'll find the four basic principles that critical race theory is based on. And I think we're going to touch on these and then we're going to discuss them as the next in this next part of the podcast. So the first main idea of critical race theory, as defined by critical race theorists, you know, not as defined by J. Scott Harton and Ellie Londi on the Up Your Dialogue podcast, but as defined by the people who originated this theory and as is promulgated by people such as Ibram X. Kendi um, and, you know, the, the folks that J. Scott Harden brought up. Um, the first main principle is that racism is ordinary. So we have always thought of racism as something that is not ordinary, something that is, um, you know, it, it's it's one race of people that has decided that there is an inferior race of people and that I am better than you because of the color of my skin. And so I'm going to make laws that don't allow you to participate in things with me. I'm going to see you as inferior and, and make you a slave. Um, you know, these type of ideas stem out of what we thought was racism. That was not an ordinary way of, or a proper way of living. And we conquered that basically, that idea of racism no longer permeates society at large. Um, it would be hard pressed for either J. Scott or myself to go on, on the street at any time in the last decade and ask someone if they're a racist or ask someone if they believe that uh, black people are inferior to them because of the color of their skin and have a person's, you know, answer in the affirmative to this. Um, our laws have been changed in regards to this. Uh, you cannot not give someone a job because of the color of their skin. It's against the law. Um, the Civil Rights Act in the 60s uh, was, you know, the big, the big, you know, grand event in regards to this. We've had many uh, laws and judicial decisions made that have been in favor of striking down this type of thought. So it's not, racism is not seen as an ordinary thing for American people today. Um, but critical race theory says that racism is ordinary in this regard, that it's a common everyday experience. Racism is in all things. It defines all things. Um, it's system-based. So you may not know this as an individual. So you as an individual may say, I'm not racist, but you are part of a system that is racist. And so many times you won't even know of yourself as being a racist. But you see, the difference here is that racism is in the structures. And so what whiteness is, and you may hear this term whiteness, what whiteness is, is something, an environment, so, uh, is a type of environment that you have grown up in as a white person, where you have been a part of this white structure uh, that people have developed, where you benefit from it, you're not able to see yourself outside of it. And so by that definition, you can be part of a racist structure that in turn makes you a racist. And so uh, think of this in the way of the 1619 Project. So the 1619 Project is basically goes against the idea of 1776 being the founding of the country. Well, what was 1776? Well, 1776, obviously with the rabbit. The, uh, with the Revolutionary War, um, America became independent, became a country. Um, you may uh, decide that, you know, in the 1780s when the Constitution came around was actually when, you know, America was founded and became the country that we are. Uh, we have historically seen that as the beginning of the country. Um, and, but this was done by white people for reasons that white people wanted to succeed in um, from white people that owned slaves. You'll see people attack Abraham Lincoln. 
you'll see people attack George Washington. You'll see people attack uh, the founding fathers at large um, because they were part of the structure of America that was racist. Everything is racist. All the structures are racist. Everything is defined by racism, seen through the, the lens of racism, right? So racism is ordinary. It permeates everything. And because of this, it permeates the founding of the country. So the 1619 Project says that the founding of the country was when? Well, when the first American slave was brought to this country. That's when everything starts for critical race theory or for critical race theorists involved in the 169 Project that are attempting to redefine the country all the way back to its very founding in order in attempt to tear down the structure of what we have seen as America's building blocks, the Judeo-Christian building blocks of, uh, of the country, uh, which defined you know, our rights. It defined the way that we think of our laws. It defined everything. And we grew up in this. So we are part of this white hegemony that says this is the way things are. Where well, a direct attack on that is the 1619 Project that seeks to redefine that through the lens of racism, where, where everything that you thought was ordinary and real is just a part of your whiteness, just a part of the environment that you grew up in that you really had no control over. So in essence, if you think of the George Floyd incident, the, the cop who killed George Floyd, yeah, he was sentenced for that. Whether you think that, that, that the ultimate verdict for Derek Chauvin was um, legitimate or not. The point is that Derek Chauvin is an example of racism because it's everywhere. And he was convicted of it and he was sentenced for it or he will be sentenced for it. But that does not show progress because that is individual. That is not structure based. So we have to continue to do, quote, the work, unquote, something you'll hear often from critical race theorists, um, from people pushing this ideology, we have to do the work, which is to define the underlying systems that are responsible for Derek Chauvin, which is the police department. That's where you get the defund the police idea. That's where you get from removing funding from police departments because it's that structure that created the likes of Derek Chauvin. So it's the structures that create the people. And you'll see critical race theorists get away from individuals, get away from the idea of individuality and move strictly to groups and defining everyone by the groups that they're in. Because this is important to an intersectionality, which divides everybody up into groups and says, you're part of this group, this group, and this group. And because of that, you have a certain value to you. That's also why you hear these people talk about needing to have a conversation because, because critical race theory is not something that's based necessarily in objective fact. It's based basically in in feelings and subjectiveness. And so, in other words, I as a white person cannot understand what a black person is thinking in regards to race. And so the only way that I can gain the knowledge of this, which we're going to touch on in another point that we discuss uh, on critical race theory, is to have a conversation with someone like a black person in regards to race and learn from them and do the work that they tell us to do on a certain topic such as racism in order for us to be able to gain knowledge. We can't simply go to any of the structures in place to understand it apart from having that conversation because they're all struck through with racism. And, and I can't possibly talk to another white person about racism. They have no knowledge in this regard. So that's the first kind of main idea of, of um, the first principle of CRT as defined in, uh, in the book written by DeGaldo and uh, Delgado and Stefanczyk themselves. Uh, any thoughts on that first point, J. Scott? Well, this is a good um, place, again, to go back and find a, a generalized conglomeration of some of the history of the movement and of the idea of America's racist past, this was what I meant when it's the lesser known of the histories of the United States. And just as an aside, I think Chauvin was sentenced uh, to 22 years, something like that, 22 or 23 years. So that sentence is on the books, um, conviction and sentence. But this notion that American history really started in 1619, what is called now the 1619 Project, and what has been called 
um, by critical race theorists or indeed activists uh, in the last 50 years uh, as the 400 years, in other words, the 400 years that have gone by since 1619. And with critical race theory, the importation of Marxist ideology, which is that people are divided into categories. With Marx, it was the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, the owners of property and factories and the workers, uh, and this revolution that must take place and an endpoint in which the workers would triumph over the owners in a socialist utopia that was essentially undefined probably undefinable and never has been attained and probably never will be. Um, but the importation of Marxism was one of the branches. The history of America and its slavery or race problem is the kind of geographical or on a world scale, the provincial um, part of critical race theory, the American part of the history of blacks, racism, and slavery in the United States and its impact. So you take an ideology that wasn't really about Americans per se, Marxism, and then you, you also superimpose on that. The lens through which it takes place here and now is the American race problem. Um, and so my point about 1619 is that this is the date of the first uh, African slave brought to the East Coast of, of North America, uh, mainland. And how this is the beginning of American history is a bit strange to me because the United States of America was not yet founded in 1619 and in fact would not be founded until 1776 by an act of revolution against the king of England um, and the empire of England, which was the largest, what would become the largest land empire in the history of this planet at its maximum. Uh, the king of England was the king of 25% of the surface area of this planet, including off and on places like North America and huge swaths of Africa, India, Australia, uh, may single out Canada just because it's so damn large, um, and indeed much of the entire planet. This is the primary example of what is called colonialism. And people I've always thought were a bit misguided or misinformed when they talk about America as a colonial empire, because a colonial empire, in my mind, is one that controls something like 25% of the surface area of the planet. Oh, or at least an extensive area of the planet. The French had an empire, um, a colonial empire. The Italians and Germans had a colonial empire. The Belgians had a colonial empire. What America had was things like the island of Puerto Rico uh, or Midway or the Philippines, which were protected in World War II and returned. Uh, this conglomeration of little islands and places does not a colonial empire make. So you will never find that the United States in a military fashion uh, through occupation controlled huge swaths of the world on a semi-permanent basis. There is no uh, hundreds of years of occupation of something like India uh, or somewhere like the, you know, the entirety of North Africa uh, or the entirety of South America. That is a Spanish empire and Portuguese empire thing that carving out of South America. The United States was different. Um, and in 1619, the United States of America was not at all the United States of America. It was a barely beginnings of a colonized territory of the British Empire, and indeed parts of America, the French and Spanish empires as well. So they're missing the mark on the history of the founding of this country if they suppose America was anything like the United States of America in 1619, and for more, well, more than 100 and approaching 200 years after that. Um, that being said, we do have a history of slavery in America as the colonial empires did before the existence of the United States of America, and indeed, in the human history of the species of this planet. Slavery has been around, but it has been here too in America, uh, and was ultimately settled in an official capacity upon the death of over 600,000 men in battle and millions wounded in the U.S. Civil War, 1861 to 1865. It should be noted that most of the, by far, most of the combatants in that war and most of the dead in that war were in fact white Americans, either from the North or the South. Uh, many men died and many families were ruined to correct the formal institution of slavery uh, based on the U.S. Civil War. The person that I went back and looked under the hood of 
because in the 1950s and 60s in the civil rights era, there were two branches of the idea of correcting continued wrongs against black people in America. One branch of the civil rights movement was led by Martin Luther King Jr. And the statement of Martin Luther King Jr. that I've always uh, loved the most was from the I Have a Dream speech. Um, and this quote was, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. It's a famous quote and it has everything to do with merit and humanity and responsibility. And it has very little to do based on the language of this color of the skin of the person in question. And so we call that when we disregard the color of the skin of the person in question, when we disregard that, we call that not being a racist uh, or in fact, non-racism. Um, and this was the dream of Martin Luther King Jr., a country where that was no longer the case. The other and less known branch of the civil rights movement were more militant and radical. Malcolm X was their most famous leader, but another prominent leader in the Black Panther movement of the 1960s was Eldridge Cleaver. And I hadn't read him before, so I took the liberty of finding his book, Soul on Ice, first edition published in 1968, is the one I got a hold of. And Eldridge Cleaver became awakened, is what he called it, um, when he was in prison for various petty crimes, drug dealing, thievery, um, and Brown versus Board of Education. Uh, a Supreme Court case was decided in 1954 that ended the separate but equal, um, and what I would call a Jim Crow era model where blacks and whites, particularly in the South, not so much in Oregon where I'm from, or the West Coast where I'm from, but in the American South, facilities were separated based on race. So you couldn't get into the restaurant through the front door if you were black, or you had to use a separate drinking fountain or go to a separate school. The Supreme Court ended this in 1954, this practice, and that awoke Cleaver as to not having gone far enough. And so he ended up writing this book, Soul on Ice. And I'm going to share some passages from it with our listeners, because I found it very illuminating about the origins of critical race theory in this country in terms of its practical application. So we talked about Marxism, but we haven't talked fully about the history of black slavery, black oppression, and its correction. And Eldridge Cleaver was all about that. And at the beginning of his book, and here are some of the passages of interest, uh, he writes, and I quote, this is from the first edition, uh, page 14. I became a rapist to refine my technique and modus operandi, I started out by practicing on black girls in the ghetto, in the black ghetto where dark and vicious deeds appear not as aberrations or deviations from the norm, but as part of the sufficiency of the evil of the day. And when I considered myself smooth enough, I crossed the tracks and sought out white prey. I did this consciously, deliberately, willfully, methodically, though looking back, I see that I was in a frantic, wild, and completely abandoned frame of mind. And so this is the beginning of Cleaver's essentially collection of essays and autobiographical statements where rape was a particular method to be used by black men to as a correction for the wrongs that have been done to black people what i consider a form of metonymy and metonymy is not necessarily a familiar word to everyone but metonymy means that when somebody does you a wrong you, you do then an injustice to a third party and this is what critical race theory is all about somebody in the past say 400 or 200 years ago or 100 years ago was done a wrong and therefore other Third parties have to pay for this now, even though those weren't the persons who committed the acts in the first place. This is critical race theory at its nutshell. Uh, we have to apologize for being white or male because somebody who was white or male committed a crime against somebody else hundreds of years ago somewhere else. That's a metonymy. Cleaver goes on to say rape was an, in and I'm quoting, rape was an insurrectionary act. It delighted me that I was defying and trampling upon the white man's law, upon his system of values, and that I was defiling his women. And this point, I believe, was the most satisfying to me because I was very resentful over the historical fact of how the white man has used the black woman. I felt I was getting revenge. From the site of the act of rape, consternation spreads outwardly in concentric circles, 
I wanted to send waves of consternation throughout the white race. Recently, I came upon a quotation from one of Leroy Jones's poems taken from his book, The Dead Lecturer, who said, Come up, black Dada Neolismus, rape the white girls, rape their fathers, cut their mothers' throats. I have lived those lines, and I know that if I had not been apprehended, I would have slit some white throats. And that is the ending of the quote from page 14 of Solon Ice, which I continue to read. So this was the metonymized idea of saying a black woman in the past was done an injustice somewhere, and therefore white women need to receive a raping punishment as a consequence, even though they weren't the persons in question, whoever did the original act from hundreds of years ago. So essentially Cleaver wrote this book to explain his position um, as to why it would be the correct thing to do, at least at that time, to get back at white people, starting with their women and ending with the blood and death of the white race. And he went on to then talk about the transformation of white heroes. And he was thinking about people like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln and turning them making people understand that in fact these were the villains propagating a never-ending um, history of black oppression. Uh, and it wasn't just Washington, Jefferson, and Lincoln. It was every president or leader since Washington, Jefferson, uh, and Lincoln. How is he going to do this? Cleaver went on to say the main method of doing this is to separate the white youth from the white non-youth. In other words, you focus on the children. Uh, and these are people who are the most vulnerable, experiencing what he called white guilt, a term we still use today. Somebody was done something wrong in the past, and you, liberals of America, feel guilty about that act and wish to... Um, wish to atone for those acts, even though you didn't personally commit them. But nevertheless, because of your whiteness, uh, you're the one that has to atone for that. Um, and he writes about how this is done with the white youth. And I'll quote, the white youth of today are coming to see, and by today he meant the 1960s, late 60s, the white youth of today are coming to see intuitively that to escape the onus of the history their fathers made, they must face and admit the moral truth concerning the works of their fathers. In other words, if your previous generation committed um, acts of oppression, then you have to atone for it, white youth, and you don't know any better, so we're going to separate you from your elders, from your adults, and teach you this. Um, and so this is where you get your 400 years, your 1619 project prominent today uh, and prominent at its origin in 2019, the 400 years model. Cleaver writes on page 73, and I quote, when white freedom writers were brutalized along with blacks, a sigh of relief went up from the black masses because the blacks knew that white blood is the coin of freedom in a land where for 400 years, black blood has been shed unremarked and with impunity. So blacks have been getting the short end of the stick starting 400 years ago, and the way to pay for it and gain attention and notoriety is to have white youth killing each other and dying to others in the payment of this act. And so this is really the part that L.A. got at with his statement. There are two histories of America, uh, what some people could call almost a schizophrenic psyche in the histories of America. There's a traditional history that which many people are familiar, wherein the origin of America was 1776 uh, because of a collective act of revolution against the British Empire to establish an independent nation. And there you get the Declaration of Independence and the preamble and the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and the amendments that followed it. Uh, but the other branch of the history of America is indeed the 1619 400-year model. Um, and Cleaver writes about that. Its two conflicting images of itself, he says, were never reconciled, because never before has the survival of its most cherished myths made a reconciliation mandatory. Once before, during the bitter struggle between North and South, climaxed by the Civil War, the two images of America came into conflict, although whites North and South scarcely understood it. So here Cleaver is saying that the Civil War is the only case where White people understood, however temporarily, that blacks were to be freed and that blood was to be shed about that. But for Cleaver, it wasn't over. And for Marxists, it's never over. That's part of my point about Marxism. It's never over. Not even with the collapse of the Soviet Union was it over, as we see in America now. And as we will see, not only in America now, it's almost hard to imagine when it could ever possibly be over. Um, Cleaver is saying that the 
U.S. Civil War and its formal ending of slavery was just the beginning of a larger revolution and set of bloodshed that will never be complete until white people have paid in blood for injustices committed by people in the past against black people. And this is really the kernel of the application of Marxism to the American experience of racial um, race relations and tensions throughout the history of America and before the history of America on this continent. It will never be complete, according to such theorists, until whites have paid for the crimes of other forefathers from the past. And so I think that is the most important to be understood. For these radical CRT theorists, there is no uh, end point, save that of some nebulous future revolution where the white peoples have paid in full, and by which that means paid with blood, uh, to their death for the experience of the wrongs of other people against other people in the past. So I think that's good on that point. People, if they haven't read Eldridge Cleaver, should have a look under the hood to find a very important source of critical race theory used by the critical race theories of the 90s uh, that L.A. mentions, and indeed will discuss uh, its application in the very prominent works of one Ibram X. Kendi today. So we have an important point brought out by Jay Scott here um, that I think everyone needs to realize, and that is that we are moving away from the Martin Luther King junior idea of racism um, and how it is tackled, how it is overcome. The content of the character speech is an important one. It's been important and and much and has gained much notoriety over the years since he made the, the speech, the I have a dream speech. But I I tend to think that some of the Martin Luther King Jr. boulevards that are around the country may soon be replaced by uh, George Floyd, other names that may come into to play um, because that idea of overcoming racism in America that Martin Luther King Jr. had is really no longer the approach. And that's something I think that confuses many Americans when we talk about the idea of racism. We're almost talking past each other now, where some Americans have the Martin Luther King idea, while other Americans have the Eldridge Cleaver idea, maybe softened a bit, but those ideas, the critical race theory ideas of tearing down structures in order to achieve this nebulous idea that you never can quite get to without subjugating a complete race of people, which obviously Martin Luther King, you know, MLK did not have in mind. So I think it's important in this discussion to really bring that to light. And I think Jay Scott's done a good job of kind of laying the groundwork for that, that it's not your grandfather's racism that we're talking about here. It's not, you know, everybody needs to be judged by the content of their character. It's basically if you're white and even worse, if you're not intersectional. So you are a white, cisgendered, uh, you know, native born male. And that's just a few of the categories, but those are the main ones. Then you are part of the problem. You can't even define your problem or even understand your problem. So you can't possibly overcome your problem um, without having this conversation with uh, people who have bought into this ideology that is Marxist-based. It's a conglomeration or a convergence of your basic critical theory Marxist and your Black Panther ideology, basically, that Jay Scott has outlined. And you've merged those two things together and developed this idea of uh, critical race theory that is uh, quite dangerous to, uh, to, you know, to the country and the culture at large. So... Uh, the first point uh, that we've covered here is that race, racism is ordinary and everywhere and involved in everything. Even the founding of the country uh, needs to be brought down and restructured based on this idea. Um, the next idea uh, brought out in critical race theory by critical race theorists is uh, what's known as a convergence theory. Uh, some have called it material determinism. Basically, the idea here is that part of your whiteness is the concept that racism serves you. It serves you materially. And the only time that you seek to prevent it is when it's beneficial for you to do so. In other words, your interests converge with other groups' interests. And so when they converge, 
maybe you do something about racism at that point, but only because it serves your best interest to do so. So this is kind of goes back to the, the class convergence of Marxism once again. But instead, we now we've taken it to uh, races of people and we put them in their in their groups of race and then said the only time that the white race does anything in regards to racism is when it benefits that group of people. Um, so we enjoy this as as white people with this environment that has been created for us where we gain from all the structures that have put in place over the decades. Uh, and, and we don't even see it oftentimes. Um, so uh, it, it's also very uh, power defined. So everything is kind of defined in the idea of power. So the white hegemony power structures that are in place need to be brought down, need to be attacked uh, because they are the problem. They have been erected uh, by a group of people that have done so for their own purposes and, and, and created their own environments for their own interests. And so once again, this has nothing to do with the individual necessarily, but the group that you're attached to. And if you're white, then you're attached to a white group. And if you're a white cisgendered male, then you're attached to um, the power structure. And of course, that power structure needs to be brought down. And one of the reasons that they have attempted to do this is through the idea of intersectionality, being that we're able in intersectionality, we're able to define this group of people, these white cisgendered males. And they're left over by all the group definitions that surround them. So in other words, if you're black, then you're not in that white group. And that's one check. That's one check for you. If you're female, you're not in that group. That's another check for you. If you're homosexual, you're not in that group. That's another check for you. And so you get these check marks along the way that sort of define your value by the group that you're in. You no longer have really value by your own individuality. You're valued by the groups that you're a part of. And then what we have to do as people who are part of the power structure is we have to start having conversations with people in regards to race, in regards to oppression with these other groups, because that's the only way that we can gain knowledge. And that brings me to uh, another point that's brought out by critical race theorists. That is uh, the superiority of the mindset of, of the oppressed. In other words, we have to have this conversation with these groups because it's the only way that we can learn. The only way that we can learn is by having the conversation and listening because the only knowledge of racism is in the oppressed. So the oppressor doesn't have access to the knowledge that the oppressed does. There's no way for you to gain this knowledge. So the conversation is important because it's the only way that you can learn. And then what comes out of that conversation, as Jay Scott has pointed out already, is the atonement. It's the apologizing for your whiteness, apologizing for the idea that you haven't had this knowledge. And now that you've gained this knowledge from the person that you've either willingly or unknowingly oppressed, now you're able to do the work of um, either apologizing or atoning or coming to terms with your whiteness that you didn't really know you had or were a part of because you didn't have that knowledge. So where in the former ways of thinking that you could have opinions based on knowledge and facts gained from something. In other words, I could understand that there is a problem in the black community if I look at something like murder rates or black on black crime. If I have a discussion with someone about murder rates in a city and I say that black on black crime is a problem in a city based on these stats. And so uh, I can also see that uh, there's a, a 70% uh, child birth out of wedlock for people of color, for black people in that community. So that is also a problem. So we need to talk about problems from that standpoint, from basic factual statistical data that I can look at and see a problem 
and talk about that problem as it relates to that data. I can't do that. And I can't do that because gaining knowledge from that is just part of the structural problem. Um, what I really need to do is have a subjective conversation that's feeling-based with a Black person so that that Black person can tell me what the actual problems are and how I need to impact those problems um, in order to overcome them. And as has already been pointed out, this problem will never be overcome this way because there's no defined solution. We're in a facts-based critical thinking methodology. You could approach something and come up with a facts-based solution out of that methodology. But that doesn't happen within critical race theory because this is purely subjective based on whatever the leaders of that theory say. So it's almost cultic when you think about it. In other words, it's not over until someone says it's over. There's no solution until someone tells me of a solution. Uh, there's no end game until the cult leader has an epiphany of what the end game is. So when you hear about having the conversation or needing to do the work, that's where this comes from. It comes from the idea that you don't have a, a proper mindset and you can't have a proper mindset in order to deal with the problem of racism uh, until someone who is an is oppressed by that idea system of racism um, explains it to you and then you can properly atone for that so uh, that superiority of the mindset is a key point in critical race theory as well as the convergence theory uh, being a, a a third point and then the fourth point being that race is a social construct and not one that we need to tear down but that we need to embrace in other words knowledge not only can you not obtain it uh, by factual statistical data but you also gain knowledge through your social environment, right? So there's no objective knowledge. There's no objective truth. There's only subjective knowledge gained through your environment. So if you didn't grow up in an environment where racism was was being oppressive, then you have no knowledge of that environment. You have no knowledge of, of racism in, in actuality because it's not objective. Um, and so when you combine all of that together, all of those points, you get a system that leads to this idea of anti-racism that um, is really pushed by people like Ibram X. Kendi um, saying that anti, you have to be anti-racist. And the only way that you can be, it's not good enough to just say, I'm not racist, but you have to be anti-racist, which means you have to do this work in order to, in order to not be racist, which is to remove the racist barriers that are in your way from really being able to understand what racism is. Uh, you know, which leads right into intersectionality, which leads right into the group-based think, um, and which leads right into the values that uh, people at Holt to CRT have. So with those points in mind, once again, remember, these aren't points that Jay Scott and I just made up yesterday. These are points from the magnus opus of CRT, which is really uh, this this book by Delgado and uh, Stefanczyk, uh, Intro to Critical Race Theory. comes right out of the book. You can read it for yourself, uh, where they define the, the overall framework of CRT. And so every um, thought that comes out of a book by Abram X. Kendi is coming out of this type of Marxist slash racist thinking that really does not have its roots in MLK. It has its roots in Marxist, Black Panther, Malcolm X type type origination. And that's an important distinction to make when you're thinking about this modern idea of racism that's been redefined uh, in order to prevent talking past the person that you are attempting to have a conversation with that has bought into this CRT ideology. So um, your thoughts on, on any of that? Sure. There were a number of important uh, points raised, especially when you look at the, the you know introduction and conglomeration of Delgado and Stefanczyk. And you have to do the work. And that is, you have to do the work, you have to do the work, you have to do the work, is what is said about, uh, in particular, the limitations of 
the white male experience, heterosexual experience in America. And the thing about you have to do the work is that that work is never complete by definition. And that is a Marxist uh, concept. It's not over until some unspecified grand utopia takes place magically. Marx called it the withering away of the state at the end of the victory of the workers, the proletariat, against the bourgeoisie of his day. Uh, the withering of the way of the state is this utopian concept that will happen in unspecified ways at the end of the journey. It's teleology. And Ellie brings up an important point, which is we have discussed some of the important um, historical origins of critical race theory in this episode, but who are the leaders of today? And we have brought up uh, in passing someone who I will focus on specifically and in some detail, which is Ibram X. Kendi. And Kendi is the most prominent, among certainly the most prominent uh, critical race theorists of today, right now in 2021. And if you haven't come upon Ibram X. Kendi, I just pulled up his Wikipedia page uh, where you can go to find out some basic information about his biography. And I'll just review the first little blurb so that people get the idea. There's a couple of important ideas that come out in the just the brief introduction of who this fellow is. Ibram Zolani Kendi, so that's where the X comes from, was born in 1982, and his name was Ibram Henry Rogers. And Henry Rogers, um, the original name of Ibram X Kendi, it says, was born who was born in Jamaica, Jamaica neighborhood of New York City, borough of Queens, to a middle class uh, parents, Carol Rogers business analyst for a healthcare organization, and Larry Rogers, a tax accountant and later hospital chaplain. Uh, from third to eighth grade, Kendi attended private Christian schools in Queens. After attending John Brown High School as a freshman at age 15, Kendi moved with his family to Manassas, Virginia, and attended Jackson High School there, from which he graduated in 2000. In 2005, Kendi, Kendi received dual Bachelor of Science degrees in Ameri African American Studies and, ma and also magazine production from Florida A&M University. Later, in 2007 and 2010, he earned master's and PhD in African-American studies from Temple University. Uh, his dissertation was called The Black Campus Movement, an Afrocentric Narrative History of the Struggle to Diversify Higher Education Between 1965 and 1972. So here you have Ibram X. Kendi, whose famous works lately in the past years are his books, uh, Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America. This was published in 2016. How to Be an Anti-Racist, uh, published in 2019. That's the book that I read. And this year, 2021, his uh, anthology called 400 Souls, uh, thus matching 400, the 400-year 400 model of the 1619 project or concept, and the one referred to by Eldridge Cleaver that we discussed earlier. But I bring to people's attention that this was Henry Rogers uh, originally, who went to Christian schools and came from a middle-class family uh, whose parents were a healthcare analyst and an accountant. And in How to Be an Anti-Racist, he criticizes his own parents for accepting the default and therefore white model of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, getting a certain education and jobs to try to improve your position so that you can buy a house and send your kids to middle-class Christian schools in New York City. And that's what they did. But the parents weren't radical enough for the future Ibram X. Kendi. And as I read this book to try and look under the hood of what is meant by anti-racism, and what is meant by wokeness, and what is meant by convergence, and what is meant by doing the work, uh, and what is meant by racism and how it is to be addressed in America. The part that I noticed that is like the withering of the state is this nebulous idea that there's no necessary, no necessarily ending point of the journey. And we thought we knew what equality meant and the analogous term equity synonym, but this is an example where an academic took that word into the workshop, redefined it, and I'm speaking of of equity here, and then re-released it. I call it, instead of equity, the original term, I'm down with the using of the X concept, Malcolm X, or 
Abram X. Kennedy. Um, and so I call these terms in my own analysis the same name of the term, but it's modified form. It's now that term with a dash and the letter X, so equity X. But here's the here's the uh, important point about anti-racism. Um, anti-racism is meant to distinguish itself from the idea of being a non-racist. So we talked about Martin Luther King Jr. and not looking at the color of people's skin, but based on the content of their character was his hope and his dream. Uh, but being a non-racist isn't the problem with being not a racist in the woke model of critical race theory and its application by Ibram X. Kendi is that it's not active enough. There's no activist component to it. So if I tell people, as I do sometimes, that I am not a racist, uh, that means that I'm contributing to the problem of racism and that therefore I am an, unwin an unwitting racist because I have not focused on attacking it through the model that is required. And the model that is required was brought up by our friend L.A. Londi in this discussion. Uh, we are not, if we fail to check off intersectional boxes in our identity, and these boxes are defined by critical race theorists, and so they do the definitions, and if we don't fit the model of the identity, then we're not allowed to have an opinion that matters about the topic of race, or indeed about any other topic uh, in American culture, because we lack the credentials. We're not fully enough, I guess what you would call appropriately human, to be able to have a discussion with other humans. Sounds pretty racist, but it's not racism, it's anti-racism. And Gendy says that there is no such thing in his book as a non-racist or a race-neutral policy. If you feel as though you, or act as though you are non-racist or race-neutral, you're contributing to uh, the problem. And as Kleber famously said, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. That's where that comes from. Kendi says, and I quote, and here we have everything to do with the concept of metonymy that I mentioned. The only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. End quote. That's on page 19 for those who want to have a look at how to be an anti-racist, Kendi's book. And so discrimination has occurred in the past, and the remedy to that is by discriminating against somebody else now. And that's not going to be enough. You have to also sign up for discriminating against people in the future. So it's not even about the people of today, it's how to make sure you have a correct model to discriminate against people of the future forever. This is the withering of the way of the state idea in Marxism, this kind of utopia. Well, it's an endless amount of future discrimination against other future people. That's the remedy for past discrimination against other people. So people you don't know discriminated against other people you don't know, and people in the future have to discriminate against people from the future they don't know. And so where are we? We're the person standing in the middle of this. And as I read How to Be an Anti-Racist, I'm trying to figure out whom am I trying to discriminate against today and in the future so that I can correct other people's discrimination of somebody else from the past. Like I say, it's a little bit confusing. Um, and I think anti-racism at first confused a great many people. And now uh, it's come to the forefront because critical race theory seeped out of its academic world, which was the sociology departments of Western Marxists trying to explain why, in fact, Marxism-Leninism didn't end up conquering the world, putting it in their academic jar, and then it seeped out of the sociology departments of universities, not yet entering the history department at my universities, which is why I missed it, because I was busy doing history, um, you know, with areas like facts and contending points of view and the idea that people would discuss and have discussed contending points of view in regard to the facts throughout time and place. Uh, and later it seeped out, I think of it like a tumor that metastasizes and ends up escaping from the organ that it already polluted and then starts infecting the rest of the body. The rest of the body being now the rest of the university and all of its departments, including even math departments and elsewhere, where the correct answer is invalid because it's a white answer. And an accurate scientific statement isn't accurate because it's a white scientific answer. Seeping out of the university 
sociology departments into the other branches and now off the campus into the other parts of society. Business, military, I'll let LA speak to this, but I would say even church and certainly education and popular culture in all manner. Um, we have a world with a, a huge amount of violence now after 2020. And the example of the nine-minute knee on the neck of George Floyd and the punishment later of the police officer, Derek Chauvin, and the race riots that have ensued, I think more than a thousand of them in 2020, um, mainly unchecked throughout many cities in America, including my hometown of Portland, as we've discussed on this podcast. Downtown Portland is a total mess, and it's not the only city that is now a total mess. Um, but it's the one that hurts me because it was my home city at some point. Um, and this is a model that is necessary for critical race theorists, because it is part of the endless attack that needs to be done based on future discrimination in order to correct this. In fact, it's a Black Panther, Malcolm X, and Eldridge Cleaver application of the model. And here we are. Um, and so Ibram X. Kendi is worth um, the read for people to get an idea of, especially the terminology of today isn't what you thought it is. Um, now you don't really discuss the idea of women, it's Wimexen because identifying somebody as a woman may, biological woman, may interfere with their own self-identity as perhaps a biological woman or something non-biological woman, even if they are a biological woman. So it's Wimexen. It's Latinx. Uh, I heard a humorous version of that term the other day. I thought it was funny, but Latinx is what it was called. Identity isn't what you thought it was. It's identity X. Infrastructure X. Police reimagined. So we can call that policing X. Stimulus packages that don't do what you think they do. Stimulus X, Climate X, Curriculum. You thought it was a set of agreed upon values, but it's really Curriculum X, and it has a lot to teach your children about the current and future states of America. Immigration isn't immigration, it's Immigration X. So you don't just flee an oppressive government and come to America for asylum. You claim, for example, you're a transgender and people in your country don't like that. So you have to come here because you've been oppressed and you fear for your life. That's part of Immigration X. And it comes right along with a topic we've discussed on this podcast before, called open borders. Uh, we're in the midst of that right now. If you live in the south part of the United States, you can see it everywhere, but but we're you know gaining hundreds of thousands and indeed millions of immigrants, many of which we have no idea who that is. We're hoping it's someone fleeing whatever their view of oppression is and not a terrorist looking to do some intemperate act upon our nation. Some of them there's great there's risk that some of them will do that. Climate's one. Many people had no idea. Um, and even I didn't have an understanding at first about the view of climate for example, a popular and hot topic um, that has everything to do with anti-racism. In fact, it's not the climate policy you thought it might have been, such as, um, you know, improving carbon emissions in the environment or trying to stop forms of pollution or things like that. According to Gendy in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, it says, do nothing climate policy is a racist policy. Since the predominantly non-white global South is being victimized by climate change, more than the wider global north, even as the wider global north is contributing more to its acceleration, end quote. So climate is caused by white racists trying to profit and pollute off of the planet, and the people of color from other parts of the world are suffering due to the white profit model. And therefore, this is yet another example. All things have to go through this racist, anti-racist lens, um, and it doesn't matter what it is. So if you don't see things through the lens of your own white racism, then you are contributing to racism. And Kendi says that calling somebody a racist isn't an offensive or what he says pejorative term. It's just a description of an activity, a useful description, he says. And so now everybody, if you watch uh, the news or anywhere else, everyone calls everybody a racist. Everyone calls everybody a supremacist. Everybody calls everybody a Nazi. And the terms fly. And if you haven't been on Twitter, you haven't seen 
all the goo that sticks on everything. And I don't know about the rest of you listeners, but one can only be shouted at that they're a supremacist Nazi racist, I think maybe several hundred times before it loses its meaning. And so it was very interesting to go through this process of engaging publicly and in preparation for this episode. Um, It was very interesting for me because I had to go through the question of, well, now, Jay Scott, you have done a thousand things in your life with friends who are not white and not always male, and you've constructed beautiful relationships You've worked through problems and problem solving. You've made friendships with people from all over the world of all different kinds of skin color backgrounds, and you consider yourself to be a non-racist. But are you secretly really a racist in your heart? And after hundreds of times of hearing you're a dirty Nazi racist pig with many other pejoratives surrounding that, I came to the conclusion, one that I suspected anyway, that I was in fact not a racist. I am a non-racist. I do not really view people's merit based on the melatonin presence and the coloration of their skin. It means nothing to me or so I would like to believe. Um, And yet that makes me for sure a racist because I don't see this, this uh, color race lens. And he tells us the common idea of claiming color blindness is akin to the notion of being not racist. As with the not racist, the color blind individual by ostensibly failing to see race, fails to see racism and falls into racist passivity. The language of color blindness, like the language of not racist, is the mask to hide racism. So by thinking you're not a racist or operating on a non-race basis, you are in fact a racism, racist. So here you get this double talk language that is very prominent among critical race theorists of one term means the opposite of what you thought it meant. So non-racism means racist and color blindness means color means everything to you because it doesn't mean anything to you. And that kind of double talk is almost like a 1984 George Orwell thing where the ministry of love is hate and the ministry of peace is death and all the terms are flipped around until you're so confused, you have no idea anymore and the government ends up controlling you. Well, this is the frontier uh, where we're at with critical race theory in this country. And I'm glad to see that there is a backlash to it that is of note all over America. Now, which side is going to end up winning this? I have no idea. But I know I'm not alone in being confused that my non-racism really is a secret form of bitter and horrible racism. And I don't want that being taught to the children of this country. And we have to find a way to put a stop to it. Maybe that is through dialogue. Uh, Maybe that is through policy, but I'm very convinced that maybe people should become aware of what critical race theory is and what anti-racism really means, which in fact, anti-racism is a cover for a kind of racism where you take past discrimination and discriminate against people around you and in the future because of something that didn't happen to you. And so the reason behind having an episode about this critical race theory is that it's a critical of your dialogue that we should discuss in full what these terms mean, who the people are behind them, and what the possible impact of it is. And in fact, step one would be to learn about it, especially what people in the CRT world are doing with our language and the double talk that the terms we thought we knew is not what they mean. With that, we'll return to LA. Words not being what they mean. That's a big problem in the culture today. Um, Certainly a problem with, in regards to CRT and racism and everything that we've been talking about, but even becomes a a wider scale problem uh, just in communication of trying to get to the ability to solve problems, to understand what the problems even are. Um, the hijacking of the language today has really caused mass confusion in, in many different areas of thought, speech, public policy, what have you. Um, and critical race theory definitely uses that, as Jay Scott's pointed out, in order to kind of push its agenda. Um, you wouldn't think critical race theory would be so um, something that um, actually captures the minds of people today the way that we've explained it on this podcast, an actual you know, look at the true historic beginnings of, of the movement, where it came from, what it espouses, and what it attempts to do. 
yet it is very provocative in our culture today um, and, and very provocative with white people. Um, I see them all the time on uh, different YouTube videos or what have you and Twitter and all over the Internet, apologizing for their whiteness, um, following the rules of CRT. I see corporations teaching it uh, in their in their curriculums. Uh, I see obviously in the education world and now even uh, recommended reading in the military. So how does that happen? I think is an interesting uh, part of this conversation. And in part of it is through the, um, the messing around with language. So obviously people don't want to be racist. Um, we can see that in the culture. People don't want to be racist. Uh, being a racist is not something that, um, that we want to attribute ourselves to. As Jay Scott said, he doesn't believe he's a racist. Um, I'm taking at his, him at his word on that. I would say that I'm not a racist. Most Americans would say they're not a racist. So when you tell somebody that they are a racist, they immediately want to say, well, how do I become not racist? And then, of course, you can't become not racist. Uh, racism is everywhere. So you have to be anti-racist. And that's where it, and that's how it, it sort of flows. And so people latch on to this. You know, corporations, well, I don't want to be a racist corporation. I have to do something. So let's teach uh, Ibram X. Kendi's book uh, so that I can be anti-racist because nobody wants to be pro-racist, right? So anti-racist, well, if you just kind of look at it on a surface level, of course, I don't want to be pro-racist. So it's the hijacking of the language and, um, and different methodologies that are used that makes this ideology seem palatable when it really isn't, when it's really a dangerous ideology that seeks to uh, overthrow the basic structures and tenets that, th- that this country was founded on, truly founded on, as opposed to what the 1619 Project would say. Um, so important, I agree with Jay Scott, important things to know, uh, factual things to know about CRT and its history and origins and its ideology um, so that you can properly confront it when you see it and call it out for what it is because uh, more and more people are starting to do this um, and more and more people need to do this uh, so that it does not become something that envelops us completely as a society uh, You know, where we actually start to bring some of the very important structures, societal structures down, uh, whether you're talking about... Um, religion, um, culture, uh, the family unit that has really, in my view, come out of uh, religious thinking. And so that's kind of where I'm going to wrap up this discussion. Um, and that is from a worldview perspective. And that's kind of what we do here on Up Your Dialogue. Uh, we look at things through the lens of worldview. Um, I don't think that anyone does not look through, that there's anyone that does not look through the lens of a particular worldview. Um, and so CRT is a specific way of looking at the world. It's looking at the world through the lens of racism. And so uh, putting it into theological context, as the church looks at the idea of CRT, um, it is not an ideology that the church can accept. Um, it's not even something that we can take a position of, well, you know, these people might think this, but you know, we can take the meat and speed out, spit out the bones type stuff. Um, we can't even take that approach with an ideology such as CRT um, from a Christian worldview because it's juxtaposed to that worldview. It's its own worldview that sees everything through the lens of racism and oppression. And from a biblical worldview, that is not the proper way to see the world. Um, the, the Christian, uh, the Judeo-Christian idea is is one of not group, but individual. It's the individual that becomes part of a group of people, another a group of other individuals, and they come together as one cohesive, united unit. That's what the country was basically founded on, right? We all heard of what we've already talked about in the idea of the melting pot. Individuals come together with their own perspectives, with their own culture, with their own ways of thinking, with their own religions, 
and they come together and they form this American experiment that we've been undergoing. CRT seeks to tear that all down and turn everything into group think and put everyone into intersections of groups. And the biblical worldview does none of that. If you're a religious person, whether if you're a Christian person or you know, you're Catholic, you're Protestant, you're a specific denomination, whether it's Methodist or Presbyterian or whatever the case may be, you cannot accept CRT as any part of your worldview if you seek to maintain a biblical worldview. And that's because you lose the individuality of the biblical worldview, which says basically that the number one tenet of the gospel is an individual salvation. So an individual has to see the problems in and of themselves right? Uh, sin uh, is something that is very individual. Um, it's not something that's looked on from a group perspective. Um, we are individually responsible for the things that we do, not collectively responsible for these things. Um, so it's important to understand that the idea of the collective is not a biblical principle, and it's not a, a principle that the country was founded on. And not all the founding fathers were Christians. Some of them were deists, some of them, you know, held to different ideas. Jefferson, you know, took the parts out of the Bible he didn't like. You know, we're familiar with all of these things. Um, but it was Judeo-Christian principles of getting your rights from a creator that the country was founded on. Where do our rights come from? They don't come from human beings. They don't come from group think. They don't come from, uh, you know, people that are standing over us telling us how we need to think and what we need to apologize for. You know, they don't determine that. Uh, the group does not determine that. Uh, that's determined by an individual's rights given to them, endowed to them by their creator. It's there in the documents. And so it was this type of thinking, whether you, whoever you and your religion think this creator is, or think that your rights come from, what, however you define that, you come together in the great American experiment and unite as an American together for a purpose. In the Christian worldview, you come together at the foot of the cross, united in Christ, doesn't matter if you're Greek, Gentile, Jew, whatever it is that you are, you're united in one specific purpose, and that's God's purpose. Um, and that sees no race at all. We're, we're the human race. We're one race. Um, and that's a biblical perspective. So the ideas of CRT are, are incongruent to that. They, they simply are not, cannot be accepted. The, the two worldviews are juxtaposed to each other. And uh, when I see religious people start to uh, grab onto these ideas of CRT, and when I see churches uh, that don't want to be called racist uh, start to you know, rule out portions of the Bible that they don't like, or say things that they um, that that don't line up with a biblical worldview, uh, just so that they can atone for this racist thing that they've been accused of. It just we we just simply can't do that. Uh, we don't have anything to apologize for other than the fact that we are all part of this human condition. All of us, we're all part of the human condition, which. Uh, the biblical worldview says it's sinful and corrupt. And the only thing that we can do in that regard is repent. And so the only thing that we can do in regard to racism is have, you know, one of these salvation moments where we come to realize that, you know, the true problem is in the human heart. And the only solution to that, according to the Bible, is the gospel. So um, from a Christian worldview, which I give on this podcast, um, I simply can't accept any of the tenets of CRT and, and its Marxist roots because they're anti-biblical. Um, so uh, from your lens, Jay Scott, how do you, how do you see uh, the idea of CRT's, uh, the idea of CRT and how it messes with uh, your worldview and from your lens? Right. CRT through the lens of an agnostic. I don't know if this is a topic that's ever been covered before. I've certainly never heard it in my explorations of the popular culture. Uh, and it's still a very interesting question. What does CRT look like through the lens of an agnostic? And it doesn't look good. 
uh, I have spoken earlier about what happens when you separate the young people from the rest of the community and cultures. And I will bring to the attention of our listeners a novel that I read upon the disintegration of the Soviet empire. It's called Children of the Arbat, A-R-B-A-T, and the author is Anatoly Rybakov. And in this novel, it's about what childhood looks like when you are young and have no prior experience and you find yourself being raised in the world of Stalin, Soviet Union, and how interesting it is and how useful it is to you and how disassociating it is for you when you are removed from units that were previously important structures like family and religion and culture, and instead you're looking to right out your parents and have them taken away into the gulag or dead. And you look at your friends in ways that are less than human because they're a means to an end. And so you'll use a critical theory concept, not race, but a critical theory concept of trying to throw the other guy under the bus because it gains you advantage. And you use this, this rubric of terminology and double talk language. If people haven't read Children of the Arbot, it's very interesting to see a model of what happens to young people when they're faced with a system that has destroyed uh, traditional values. As far as my particular lens, people familiar with the podcast will at some point become familiar with the fact that I play chess. And I have played chess in my lifetime in many places around this planet. And I have encountered peoples from just about every land on this planet at one point or another. One of the things I took the liberty of doing during the COVID lockdown year of 2020 was that I played a correspondence game with Alexandra Samaganova. She is a FIDE master and multi-time champion of the nation of Kyrgyzstan. And I don't know if everybody knows where Kyrgyzstan is, but if you start off in India and make your way north in the direction of Russia, you'll find it. It's a small country, previous Soviet-controlled uh, territory. And it's an independent nation now, and, and uh, this lady is their champion. So for five months, you had three days of move, and we played a five-month game. Game ended up in a draw, but I got to know a little bit more uh, through her Twitch TV channel, chess channel and through the game and the discussion about it with Samaganova, somebody I would have otherwise never met if it weren't for my chess encounters. I've played members of Olympic teams in Paris. I've played chess with people from China and Japan, South America. I've played with Arabs. I've played with other Muslims. I've played many times with Russians and people all over America, including uh, black people of all uh, stripe, um, some of whom were delicious and upstanding and others just spent 10 years in a state penitentiary. And let me tell you, when, when people get out of prison, their chess is pretty good. And this is part of my encounter with the peoples of this planet through the lens of chess, just uh, getting to know each other in a an abstract mental game that, that cuts away boundaries of class and nation and race and gender and all the rest of it. It doesn't matter when it's time to uh, checkmate or avoid checkmate, you're all about the position and the idea. And the stuff about what the other person looks like or where they're from is the most irrelevant point you could possibly encounter. And certainly it is a point that has nothing to do with race. Critical race theory through the lens of the agnostic looks barbaric, uncivilized, destructive, incredibly dangerous. Uh, for the agnostic, the central tenant isn't repentance, but it's one of learning and exploration. And for us, the destination never comes before the journey. The journey always comes before the destination. You have to travel in your mind, in your body, in your spirit throughout your life in order to get somewhere. You don't already get somewhere and then travel to the place you already arrived at. It doesn't work like that for us. And in the journey inside of a universe that is far beyond what is intuitive for a human being to imagine very well in terms of limitless space and time, the idea that people, members, <clears throat> of a species on some backward pale blue dot planet would hate each other and commit violence upon each other because of their appearance of where some of their predecessors may have lived in regard to the star that is providing light to the planet that they're on is absurd. And so the agnostic is having none of critical race theory because the journey of the 
people on this planet are part of a species and that's the unit of measurement they're not black people and white people and transgender people and female people and cis-oriented 72 different pronouns of people they're people and so the idea of harming one another or expressing acrimony toward one another when the entire universe is on the horizon and yet to be explored is very backward provincial it's frankly disgusting and i have no intention of ever becoming so jaded as to find the need to look at the person in front of me and say the most important thing about you or even a property about you that is of great note is the color of your skin it means very little to me and i find that diversity is only a beautiful thing until it's weaponized and this is what we use in terms of our own culture is the weaponization of diversity in other words you look different than me and therefore i'm more important than you or you're better than me or i have to avenge myself upon you from something from the past to somebody else i have to use metonymy and i find this the opposite of helpful at the frontier of the universe and what's to be found in it the idea of a tribal looking at the other guy and saying you don't look like me and therefore i hate you and there's something wrong with you and i have to put a stop to it now, this is not the nature of learning and exploration it doesn't fit the agnostic model uh, that much i can say and uh i think it's very important also this uh, dialogue that we have constructed here on this podcast is one of based on openness and tolerance to hear out and explore the point of the other host. And I find myself looking at the Christians around me, including the co-host of this podcast, and saying, hey, maybe there is something to this uh, need that humans may have to hold on to something like religion uh, or indeed the family or traditional culture, because when you let that go, that which fills in the space left behind is historically treacherous, murderous, and as I said, brutal, barbaric, uncivilized ignorant. And that is not a gap that we want to fill in the void because we have lost things that are foundational to who we are as a people and as Americans as well. This country does have a history of a more of the seeking out of a more perfect union. So it was never the idea of the creators and the founding fathers of this country that the destination had already been arrived at and it was perfect. That's not what they said. The journey was still to be had, hence the perfecting of the union, the idea of making progress in ways large or small over time. The practice of slavery ended in this country a long time ago, and the practice of unplugging segregation and older Jim Crow laws in this country also occurred in the past. And I find it unfortunate and, and also heartbreaking that we are now teaching our children to see the color of the other person's skin and therefore judge who they are based on that color, based on that identity, based on something that is meant to separate groups of Americans from one another. We cannot allow our children to attain an understanding of American history or of human nature on the basis of discrimination, hatred, and actual racism. That is what it looks like through the view of the agnostic. So what we've seen is that the CRT ideology does not compute with either a biblical worldview or an agnostic worldview uh, for different reasons, but for some of the same reasons. And so I think that it's interesting as... Uh, we have these conversations that although our worldviews are different, we're still human beings. We are human beings in the human condition. And that gives us points of agreement that we should have more often as human beings than we can today because of the divisive groups that have been created through the CRT ideology. It's a divisive, evil ideology that pits us against human beings against other human beings within groups. Uh, something that, as Jay Scott has pointed out, the, the agnostic journey has no time for and something that the country was not founded for and um, basic principles that the Bible does not adhere to. And so it's just a confusion. It's chaos. 
it's disorder, it's divisive, it's it's all of those things. Uh, when you understand the ideology for what it actually is, and I think we have to see it clearly for what it is, understand it, and ultimately fight against it uh, before it completely becomes pervasive throughout the culture to the point where we, we can't operate under a healthy functional system any longer. Uh, and, and we're nearing that point as more people buy into this propaganda um, and, and way of thinking that is harmful. It's harmful as individuals uh, seeking to unite, um, to form this perfect union. You have to have a union. <laughs> you have to have unity. And that unity used to be that we're Americans. We're Americans that have a purpose, which is one nation under God uh, with not equity, not the promise of equity that all people have the same outcome. Uh, we have been granted the right as Americans to have equal opportunity, not equality of outcome. It's never been promised. It's never even been a part of the solution to have equal outcomes. And CRT sees any unequal outcome as a product of racism, as, a, as some sort of evil that's been done on oppressed groups. Uh, and that's, this is just simply not the case. The Bible never saw the end of poverty. It never saw the complete end of sinful ideas such as racism. Um, it gave us principles that we could live our lives in a certain way to avoid those things. And, you know, this is found in each and every one of us. Uh, human beings aspire to something. They will worship something. You know, they have been built for that according to the Christian worldview. And in many cases today, uh, you simply have people bowing to the God of critical theory, critical race theory. Uh, it's a religion in and of itself. You listen to the tenets of it. It has its own basic religious precepts uh, because that's what human beings are, are looking for. They're looking for some something to, to fill the void that they find within themselves. And unfortunately, this really racist ideology of CRT is, is what's doing it for them as they atone for the sins of their racism. Um, just something that we really uh, should not be focused on at all. So anyway, uh, I think we're going to wrap it there. Um, that CRT from uh, the Up Your Dialogue perspective and from the various lenses that are shown here through the co-hosts, we hope that you have enjoyed it. Uh, we hope you've been able to learn something from it. And most of all, we hope that uh, in the future you can communicate to your friends and neighbors uh, about it uh, from an informed perspective. Even if you disagree with uh, some of the things that we've come to, uh, please remember that um, you know we pulled the ideas of CRT straight from its founders, straight from its own writings, and dealt with it straight with the facts. Um, and so uh, we hope that, once again, that it's been uh, something that, even if you don't agree with all of it, that you found fruitful in a way uh, because it was discussed, uh, the facts were discussed, um, and it was done so in a way that was non-combative, um, and hopefully it was beneficial to you. So um, stay tuned for future podcasts. Once again, we're not quite sure when we're going to be doing them or not on a specific schedule now, but um, you know, just uh, in your various podcast app, um, you know, subscribe to us if you want. And uh, so that when we do a new podcast, you are notified of these things. So until the next time we have another dialogue, take care of yourself and um, you know, have good conversations and we'll see you again next time.